Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today on the other side of the pond is Lex Salkman, Global Fintech Co-Lead and Head Economics, and also the founder of the Fintech Blueprint, something that I read on a very regular basis. For those of you who have yet to subscribe, please do so, because without it, I would be honest, I will be completely lost every single week. So thank you so much, Lex, and welcome to the show. My pleasure, and that's a very kind introduction. <laughs> that's an understatement. There's a whole lot more, but I'm trying to be conscious of our time here. Um, before we start, though, can you share with our audience a little bit about your journey? I'm very curious. I, I, you know, looking at your background, and you have done various things within financial services from traditional finance, um, and you start a company, multiple of them, with exits. How did you end up to where you are right now? Absolutely. I, I think this is one of these questions that uh, I'm going to try to answer sideways uh, a little bit. And so the the first is um, the first way to approach it is that I have two parts, uh, two different brains in one brain, uh, which is, was quite a struggle early on in my career. But that is, uh, I'm really interested in systems and in finance and numbers uh, in, in that kind of quantitative skill set. Um, and so, you know, I ended up doing economics in undergrad. I ended, up, I, I got a, a JD and an MBA out of Columbia as my as my grad degree. And so, I've always been very interested in the architecture of these abstract systems. And then on the other side, I've grown up being a practicing visual artist. Um, so, you know, drawing, designing, building brands, building websites, uh, playing around with Flash, which is totally and obviously not at all a fit with being an investment banker. Um, and, you know, that tension and sort of flip-flopping back and forth between I want to make beautiful photography of buildings that is abstract. Uh, and then I want to um, participate in markets and think about asset allocation. It, it took a while to rationalize these. Um, so that's that's kind of ingredient number one. Um, and then if I look at my career, the arc of it really is um, anchoring inside of financial services with with kind of a practical skill set around investment management, strategy, investment banking. Um, and I started my career at Lehman Brothers. And then that that sort of respect and interest in novelty and and creativity and you know what we would now think about as innovation really pulled at me from the early beginning towards um, towards the frontier of what was interesting. And so, um, you know, that frontier changes and I've tried to stay on it. Um, I've, I got into digital robo-advised digital wealth fintech around 2010 with a company I founded called Nestag Wealth while at Columbia. Um, then I, I sold that company and, and was part of a wealth tech platform called Advisor Engine, which was thinking about how to do robo-advice, but at the scale of larger financial institutions. Um, and, you know, I felt in that experience as we grew and commercialized the business that like the frontier was moving. It's, it wasn't about how do you make a financial advisor more efficient at filing, you know, PDF reports for, for their clients. 
Um, but that the frontier was moving with big platform shifts. So artificial intelligence, AR, VR, um, and of course, blockchain. And so I spent um, a bit of time in an equity research business, polishing up my views on this and building out building out my own systems and mental frameworks to like figure out what was going on. Um, and in retrospect, I kind of think about it that as like a novelty search algorithm, like what not pursuing things that are commercial or that I thought made sense next, but pursuing things that were the most strange and, you know, that were the most creative in the, in the finance space. And so around 2017, 2018 is when I was bitten by the Ethereum bug uh, and really kind of realized that computation on blockchains was massively interesting. And then 2019, I joined Consensus full-time um, to uh, head up the, the, a bunch of different fintech products. And then I took on a CMO role for about a year at Consensus. And now I, I'm focused on uh, crypto economics and running like a, an investment token engineering and kind of down Web3 design team. Um, and again, you know, the motivation is what is the strangest thing that's going on that is still rigorous, that is still something that can be quantified, designed and anchored into um, the types of things that I've come to believe. Um, you know, and, and so I, I do a lot of super interesting stuff related to MetaMask, to Infura, and, and kind of that ecosystem. But from the outside, it definitely looks like I've self-radicalized, like I've gone from, you know, uh, wearing a suit and running a well-organized spreadsheet to just like talking about crypto punks and identity and uh, all sorts of super silly things on the internet. But I, th I think for me, it's just trying to move with the edge of the world is, is what's compelling. That is interesting. I didn't, I didn't know about the, uh, the digital arts part, but I think in some ways that makes sense because if, if any of you who are listening to, to the episode, if we look at your long form newsletter, we'll see like how you write is different. I think I remember at one point I used the word philo philosophical to describe some of your writing. It, it's very different than most of the newsletters that we write. You're not just like one, two, three, really dry, dissect the market. You had stuff in between it. Um, so it, it, it caught my eye, but it's really cool. I love your story. Um, Renegade is I think probably I would use. Um, to describe. So let's take a look at this year. We, we're beyond the halfway point. Um, it's been an interesting year. I think I'll, I'll leave it at, at that. Uh, let's start with some good news. Um, recently, the World Bank released an updated global Findex database, something that we've been tracking for a while now. And the good news about that was despite all of the things that's been happening with COVID-19, there was a silver lining, which is digitalization has finally boosted financial inclusion. Some of the stats were very encouraging. They were talking about worldwide account ownership has increased by 50% in the past 10 years. 76% um, of adults in the world finally have some sort of formal relationship with financial institutions. And gender gap in account ownership has also um, decreased a tad bit from 9% to 6%. So it's good news all around. We're not where we need to be, but it's good to see progress. It's good to celebrate progress. 
Beyond access, I want to ask you, where do you see the industry will be heading next? What is the big thing that we'll need to tackle? I think this is a, a framing that's really interesting you know, at the macro level, and there are some answers there. And then at the at the micro level, like there's just so much detail and potential and direction also that I, that can be really compelling, you know, so to start at the macro level, like, what is what's finance? And what's the purpose of finance? Why do we even care? You know, I think for many people, finance is gross and yucky and is associated with either bankers getting multi-billion dollar bonuses and getting away with it when the, you know the banks collapse or it's, it's associated with like income inequality or um, financialization and so on and um, that's that's kind of a nice rhetorical cartoon but it doesn't really help us understand what finance is and you know I kind of to, if you go down to the basics, like people do things and the things they do are valuable and they they have some sort of um, operating economy bet between them uh, and the actual productivity of the things in the world is, is quite real. You can point that productivity at, um, you know, a field and have farmers or at a factory and have cars or at uh, <laughs> uh, strategy consulting problems and have McKinsey's, uh, or you can point it at video games and you know attention and digital media and have the metaverse. It, you know, it doesn't matter, it's just human labor pointed in different directions. And so that creates um, economic activity, some sort of gross domestic product. And, and then um, once, once you're there, you have a bunch of problems for the individual actors. So um, you've got money moving around, right? Or you, you can't barter, so you start having money moving around. And then money stops moving around and has to rest. So you go from payments to banking because money money slows down, needs to go somewhere. And then you have lots of intertemporal problems like I want to grow my business, but I don't have capital. And so I'd like to borrow some, right? So you start seeing lending and risk-taking. Um, and then some people have more or less money or particular goals and you get to investing and trading and so on and so forth. And so the financial industry is, is like a mushroom growing in the soil of the operating economy. Um, if it outgrow, you know, and GDP and financial services is somewhere between 15 and 25% of, of a developed economy, generally speaking. If it goes really high, it's like you're overgrown with this mushroom and things are not so good. Uh, if it's too low, then then the soil isn't sufficiently healthy and you don't you don't have enough kind of lubrication for the economy to work. And so I I do think having access to finance is an issue of kind of um, dignity and self sovereignty and all these things. And I do think it's very positive that access to these kind of like timeless primitives of payments, banking, lending, and investing, insurance, and so on, are much, much more accessible. And um, in some ways, like the conclusion is trivial. Like, yes, it's all being melted down from human relationship driven to, to being digital and intermediated by websites and phones. And then um, everyone's gonna have access to it and it's gonna be basically free, right? And, and that's that's, happening with the adoption of, of digital. And it's it's the same adoption curve we see for pretty much any other um, 
like platform shift technology. So for the adoption of televisions, the adoption of electricity, the adoption of the internet. Um, and you're, you're seeing the same thing for adoption of crypto these days. It's pretty much the same curve that goes from zero to 100% over some period of time. So I think, you know, COVID kind of boosted, accelerated some of this. Um, but if you look in the e-commerce data, for example, you'll see that the, the boost is just reverting to uh, the long run average of transitioning to what is like a modern technological chassis for, for financial services. So I, I think that's, um, it's, it's hard to argue against that. Like the, the, the Luddites would enjoy breaking down uh, these things, but they, they are inevitable. I think once you kind of zoom into the micro, there's a lot of different places where technology is reformatting uh, the provision of financial products, the manufacturing and the distribution, right? So the shape of the products doesn't change. Like there, there's nothing being invented about what the products are. They're the same thing as what we had 500 years ago. It just is, you know, is, is uh, encoded in a different way. And I think you can see things around um, distribution continuing to move forward. So that's more neobanks, more digital investing companies in more global places in Latin America or in, in parts of Asia. Um, you see them getting integrated into traditional footprints, um, and they're all just features. They're not they're not even uh, seen as kind of like transformational anymore. Um, and then in the middle office, kind of in the middlewares that connect um, distribution to manufacturing, you see a lot of the traditional manufacturing of financial product turn into sort of embedded versions of itself, right? So embedded. Um, payments, banking, trading, and now I see a lot of embedded financial functions for businesses. So um, like payment operations, treasuries, uh, various uh, workflows and so on. And then the the manufacturing of financial product is, it's, it's kind of the part that I'm, I've been the most interested in uh, recently uh, over the last several years, which is, you know, how do you make various exposures? And I think this is where the the kind of decentralized rails uh, come into play because they drop the manufacturing cost of financial product to zero. You know, whereas um, mobile phones and mobile apps and so on drop the distribution of that product to zero, um, you still were selling essentially. You're like intermediate intermediating Fiserv or Investnet based like uh, assets and and deposits. But with uh, with DeFi, you're seeing that we can actually manufacture all the stuff on open source software without needing to have um, uh, really kind of chunky core banking systems and so on. So for me, that's that's the most exciting and the most profound thing. And I'm not saying that the current iteration of that stuff is the right architecture today, um, but I do think that the whole sector is just kind of going to get flipped into being open source and that the you know the tech distribution that's been established is going to pivot to those rails um of course that's that's quite a bit out uh but you know i want i wanted to give a holistic answer to your question you know i i i think that there's a lot of people that are banking no pun intended on this idea that 
you know, the components of Web3 are going to replace the infrastructure of the rails that we know today and that there's going to be different, you know, pirates or different uh, captains of, of different pieces of the financial system. And it's been a bumpy road. You know, I, I, I've had these conversations recently where, you know, I, I originally looked at um, Bitcoin and the original sort of principles around how you could use distributed ledger in financial services probably back in 2010 from a future of finance um, event that I went to in San Francisco. And during the time that I was at something there, we looked at every single use case under the sun because banks were looking at this technology as, yes, this could replace rails, but they looked at it from an efficiency standpoint. They looked at it from, you know, we're still going to need to be part of this system. So how can we control pieces of it? And that's sort of the, the basis of unlocking uh, those pieces. The challenges in, in the implementation of all of this, when we think about, you know, the evolution of the ways that both the existing system, the existing platforms have looked at this technology, uh, it's gone from, yeah, you know, we're not going to really acknowledge it, it doesn't exist, to, wow, this is interesting, we're going to start it to invest, we're going to start to build, we're going to start to work with these companies. And that's what we did, you know, for many, many years and probably invested in, you know, a good six or seven straight up, you know, distributed ledger and blockchain companies um, where we were at something there. But what I wonder is what happens next? What happens next with cryptocurrencies? Because now we're kind of onto that, wow, this is a rough patch and this might be the roughest patch that we've seen in the last, you know, since 2008, the Satoshi paper is coming out. So what's happening is this really crypto winter is this like this this mild bump and this is just going to be unlocking and unleashing the the power of the evolution of what's going to be happening with cryptocurrencies because we've seen the the, the worst quarterly losses you yeah. know since all of this began and if mainstream finance if wall street if the economy in general is doing poorly i thought this idea of you know this counter cyclical economic activity that is being powered by cryptocurrencies was going to save everybody. But that's not happening. So what's happening next? How do you see what is happening with, with all of this? Uh, very uh, uh, important set of points. And I kind of, I, I'm going to lose track in answering them. Um, but I want to touch on a bunch of the the things that you've, you've said. Um, because I think a, a number of it is profound um you know and it's um i don't know how much of what i think at this point is just like self-rationalization and and how much of it is is right but i i do have a lot of thinking on on it that um at least is persuasive to me you know so so the first bit is is to say um crypto seems aside from the market cycle so crypto has its own market cycle the the correlation of the crypto market cycle to <clears throat> traditional markets has definitely changed um and i think we can talk about why that is uh, you know the short version of it is i think that institutional uh, holding of crypto assets has drastically increased and whereas bef the, the 
the factor exposure as a result has drastically increased has has drastically changed so if you look at correlations up to about two years ago crypto is uncorrelated and starting two years ago is it becomes highly correlated as institutional holdings goes up and i think as institutions start to think of the crypto asset class as like a risk on leverage play and so you know why do correlations go to one between stocks and bonds and because because <laughs> the 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 variable that is a hundred percent correlated between the two is that there's a person holding both and they need to pay a, you know uh, a mortgage so they sell both the stocks and the bonds and both go both go down right so um, if you have um, the same investor under a similar macro pressure from the interest rate environment and redemptions and all this other stuff then um, high-risk assets that are uh, let's say overpriced uh, are the first to be treated as a piggy bank and whether that's um, growth stocks that have gone up you know five times or whether that's crypto that has gone 20 times I think they're they're sort of market structure reasons as to why um, crypto didn't behave the way that um, it, it did in earlier parts of the cycle when it was frankly irrelevant from an asset allocation point of view um, but that's that's different from another point you brought up which is um you know in innovative banks that chose to lean into digital transformation um engaging with blockchain and distributed ledger themes uh and kind of coming up short in terms of the outcomes um and i think that's true actually not just for dlt but if you look at like neo banking or if you look at payments you know, no no bank has been like saved by being the first with their corporate venture fund, despite doing legitimately good work there. Um, and I, 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 you know, at consensus, I, I ran, um, I co-led the team which did digital assets and payments and CBDC stuff, and so you know, it, countless conversations around tokenization and, and these types of themes. Um, and I think the challenge um, that the, the transition that I've seen in the last the last couple of years is gone from I'm a bank and or or I'm a financial company and you know I've got 50 systems of which 49 are the worst uh, and then what I'm going to do is add one more called blockchain and it's going to cost me a whole bunch of money to integrate and also I'm not going to put anything on it because my business leaders actually really don't want to. Um, and, you know, how do, how do you sell a tokenization or digital asset solution? You sell it by saying, we'll, sa we'll save you in cost. You know, so we'll get your 20%, 30%, 40% cost savings. And of course, you don't get that because the bank is unwilling to actually rip down and burn down its horrific technology stack, which, you know, um, in the most kind ways could be described as a Frankenstein. Um, and and so for these reasons, selling cost savings is is both um, sort of uns it's unsatisfying on both sides. Um, it doesn't create the outcomes that you want, and it also it's not super exciting for for banks who I think in the last decade, because of the macro environment, are largely crushed on revenues uh, because there are no interest rates. And so what's switched in the last couple of years is going from selling blockchain as a cost-saving technology to selling the crypto asset class as a revenue opportunity. 
And arguably, we're in a bit of trouble because of that. But it's a much, much easier and more compelling sale, right? If I can add, you look at any fintech, whether it's you know Square or SoFi or PayPal, um, if I can add a line item called Bitcoin brokerage revenue, um, and it doubles my revenue, I'm going to integrate that in a month. And I couldn't, I don't, you know, I'm going to do it immediately. I don't care what technical challenges I have if I'm going to print $100 million worth of revenue. Um, and I think with that, it reveals a bunch of things to me. Um, it, it revealed, I, I think the most fundamental change I've had in my thinking is I, I kind of used to think of DeFi as this, like DeFi is going to be the next version of finance, you know, and it's, we used to have this finance here and then DeFi is gonna be version two of that because it's so much cheaper to manufacture products. And where I've gone to is, is I've reoriented what the whole thing is for. So you can't start, like finance on, on its own doesn't work and doesn't matter. Finance is only there to be helpful and useful to the economy. To, to the real operating economy. And so within our traditional economy, we have our banks and we have our, our brokerages and so on. Um, and like switching out that architecture into a decentralized architecture is very awkward and expensive. But what we're now seeing increasingly is that there is a Web3 economy that is separate and distinct from the laundromats and the sandwiches and the Starbuckses. You know, like all the stuff about we're going to tokenize your reward points and a Starbucks and then that'll be so great in your Starbucks wallet. You know, it, that's that's different from a Web3 native economy, which which people are building now. And it's going to it's going to sound like sort of science fiction, but I, I do think this is the case, which is. We, you know, we now have something like 400, 500 million people who've got uh, Web3 addresses, right? So um, on some chain, whether it's Ethereum or, or Solana or Avalanche or whatever it is, Polygon. Um, and then that means they know how to transact. They know how to have wallets and accounts in a different architecture. Um, there are digital objects in the shape of NFTs, not necessarily in that I care about what NFTs, but there are digital objects that people can create through their labor. Some of that is pictures, but it's increasingly like virtual renderings and worlds and experiences, social experiences and so on. There are now ways for people to come together to create economic activity. I mean, you don't have corporations, but you do have DAOs, which are basically internet forums with a treasury. So there's now both individual and collective labor that is being pulled together to drive um, a Web3 based economy. And so that thing needs a financial sector and it for sure is not gonna be Wells Fargo that is gonna bank the metaverse. Uh, not because you know um, I wanna throw a stone into a particular window, but because that's not the right architecture for that economy. It's the same thing as you know, you don't get into an Uber and then try to throw cash at your driver. You would be a crazy person. That is not the architecture of the experience. It's a Web2 experience with a mobile phone, you know, and it rides the payment rails and it's got your um, Apple Pay plugged in, all that stuff, right? And so you don't expect in an Uber to pay with um, a payment method that's outdated. And similarly, for any financial activity inside of Web3, I would expect DeFi to be the banking system. You know, so I would say that's kind of how how my um, 
framework has changed over time. And I think explains to me a little bit of why it's been so hard to try and retrofit or swap out gears of the old systems um, for the new ones. And so, um, you know, I think looking forward, especially during this, um, this bear market, which we all deserve, um, the most, the most productive things that can happen, I think, are for people to to figure out what it is, what kind of labor they can put together to create what kinds of digital goods that are valuable in what way, you know, and there's a ton of capital to figure it out. There's a ton, a ton of talent. There is a lot of financial um, and economic infrastructure to make it happen. Um, and I think that's why if you, if you watch the Dow space and the NFT space, it, it expands, um, at least for me, like what the purpose of the whole thing is. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I think it's it's been interesting to sort of watch it from the inside and sort of tangentially work with startups on the outside uh, of the space. And I recently wrote something in International Banker about sort of the components of Web3 and, and what lessons we have during sort of this winter. And I wanted to have them you know, I, I have a line in there that talks about the total overall assets in crypto across all the different currencies. And it's like this market cap of of crypto was, you know, when I first started writing it, 2.6 trillion or 2.5 trillion, and then it went down to 2.2, and then it went down to 1.6, and then it went down to 1.2. And I, I almost wanted them to like put this ticker, you know, to like get them to like have it be updated, you know, for every second. Um, but that's not the point of all this, is it? You know, the, the point of of everything that has been being built over the last 15 years in both sort of the crypto web three space as we've evolved into seeing it as web three uh, and talking about fintech is to change the system for more people to make it more accessible to make it sort of tangentially um, more beneficial for more people and that's still the challenge of this space is to look at the way that it's been developed and look at the infrastructure that's been developed and say is it actually making things better for people in everyday situations? Is it making things more transparent? Is it making things more, not just accessible, but more optimized so that more people actually are doing better financially? And so, you know, at the end of the day, everything that's being built, if it's not helping, it's just going to hurt. Uh, so it's, it's just, it's fascinating to watch from both the inside and out. Um, and I think, Theo, you wanted to kind of talk about the metaverse, because this is a tangential uh, format of how life might evolve a little bit. So let's talk about that. Yes, I think, oh, it, it is an interesting topic, isn't it? Um, when we talk about metaverse, I actually tried, um, I tried one of the, uh, the virtual marathon in the metaverse, I can't remember recently. It didn't do much for me, though. I, I, I'll have to admit, I don't think we are where we need to be yet. Um, I spent 10 minutes in there. I'm like, all right, this is not doing anything. I need to be outside. But that aside, um, we keep seeing different organizations from all kinds of different industries that are saying we're going into the metaverse. And, and it could just be a bank putting some sort of PR game with some CEO's digital picture in there. We're not going to name names. Um, that is not going into the metaverse. That's a PR 
That aside, we have seen also big, big numbers that are being projected by different banks. It, you know, it feels like monopoly money at this point, $13 trillion market, they say, in just a few years' time. Yes, we can print money, but maybe not that fast. I think one thing that we can all agree is it's, it's something that is here, it's something that's not where we need to be, but we think it will still evolve to be something that will be very exciting and interesting. I am curious to hear from you, um, Lex, how do you think it's, 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 it's going to be like? Because there's all kinds of promises, right? I, I don't think I can actually get by half a day without hearing something about some brand doing something inside the virtual world and at the end of the day everyone is still experimenting yeah it's a funny thing about uh people and ideas right on the one hand it's really helpful to have uh this flag called the metaverse that we can wave around and signal a bunch of ideas clumped together on the other hand we can be like this doesn't mean anything and i hate it and it's wrong and i remember in 2012 when people started using the word robo advisor like in what is a tiny, irrelevant end of the day industry, people were like mad about it's not a robot, it's not, you know, it's not giving real advice. And these these emotions about the words don't matter, right? Because the end of the day, they're just kind of they're popularizations of stories. And that on its own is helpful. And you know, I'll open I'll open, I think, the topic up in in a second, but I just wanted to get back to this idea of the market cycle mattering. And and again, I'm fairly radicalized. I could be pretty wrong. Um, that's that's totally fine. Um, you know, and again, and and my my algorithm is not um, is not the is it empowering? Is it transparent? Is it doing good? Is there like is there utility for the consumer? Because I don't think that's how innovation actually works. Um, I, I think those are necessary things for like um, a company to survive, but my algorithm is novelty. So is the thing that is being built new in some way, you know, and all the new things like in a garden will be culled away and only the strong will survive. And those are the ones that will be chosen by the market for providing value to people. Um, but, you know, I think, are the things novel? Are novel things being built? Um, is kind of is my filter, and there are many very, very strange and novel things being built that um, I think are are going to have very nonlinear outcomes. You know, so like I see a lot of metaverse fashion companies that are building economic infrastructure for like digitizing influencers and their accessories into NFTs. I mean, I have no idea. Um, how to model that or think about that as a company. But the fact that it exists flows out of a bunch of really interesting vectors like the attention economy and the creator economy and you know digital art finally having financial value. Um, and then the challenges in rendering different worlds and interoperability and anchoring to blockchains and different property rights. And so people are creating these solutions, right? And they're, they're wildly interesting and novel. And I, I think that that again, they will they will lead to kind of interesting economic activity. Um, when we look at the like the value coming in and out of markets, um, we're just we're just having a financial crisis. I mean, 
it's it's in almost boring it's in in the way that the crisis is here it's not about and and because my metric is novelty and how interesting the stuff is and what people are doing seeing the fact that you know somebody got levered up three times and put all 20 billion dollars into a ponzi and then that got liquidated and then they got liquidated and then a bunch of their lenders got liquidated i mean my first job was at lehman brothers where a bunch of people put uh too much money into mortgages that people couldn't get paid back and then that got liquidated and then people who bought them got liquidated right so countrywide going into a into bank of america was a four billion dollar hole and so on and so forth and lehman got liquidated because they were levered up on loans from other finance companies and it's just it's it's not a kind of profound it's not a fundamental development it's just uh, it's just a cycle and you know you could make these rhetorical points like 1929 the stock market crashed and there were no stocks ever again you know or in 2001 the internet internet bubble crashed and there were no internet companies ever again and in 2008 all the mortgages you know crashed and then people never had houses again and in 2022 crypto crashed and we lost blah 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 and there was never crypto again and you can see how that's pure nonsense and the people that say it you know like have no context of of um what operating progress is versus just looking at numbers on a screen. So I wanted to kind of address that before going into um, into the flag of what the metaverse is, um, you know. And and I I do think it's a useful flag, um, but but it it's not just about like the central land rendering some pixelated thing where you can buy um, NFTs. To me, it's just the confluence. Like it's it's a title for marrying together the platform shift of AR VR, right? So digital twins of the world, or you know, the reason why Facebook Meta is in the space is because they've got the hardware component for uh, virtual reality, right? And they've been working on that for a while. So for Facebook, it's about the device that projects the virtual reality into your eyes, or that that is. You know, for Apple, it would be the augmented reality engine. And basically, there, there is a game about the hardware. Then there's a second game around um, the rendering of the digital twin. And there can be many digital twins. Um, but that game is is both a, like, um, Unreal Engine epic video game uh, sort of game, or it is a machine vision artificial intelligence game because you need to map the world on which you would you would project and articulate um, kind of virtual virtual assets and experiences, i.e., Pokemon Go and so on. And so you know you have the confluence of these renderings of the digital world, um, and then power within machine vision and artificial intelligence, and then you need to have economics in this world and the ownership of digital assets and the property rights and conflict resolution around property rights. And at this stage, uh, you know, people for very good reason don't trust the large technology firms to be the architecture for the economics of like a real like digital economy. And so you're going to have most people say the word blockchain when it comes to, you know, what is the, the legal and economic chassis for, um, for markets and economies in this in 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 the rendered in the digital twin uh, on the on the other side uh, of where we live, 
And so you have people from blockchain and crypto coming to the metaverse, prioritizing blockchain and crypto assets. Then you have people from the hardware and social media world prioritizing technology. And all of it is just kind of melding together. Um, and in this way, I think it's a useful flag because it, it paints for everybody the direction towards, you know, towards which we're building. But you could say things like, um, we already have the metaverse today in crypto in the sense that you've got NFT markets and you've got, you know, crypto punks and apes and the rendering component, like what is the metaverse? Well, the metaverse is just Discord and Twitter, right? So the rendering is very immature, but the architecture for the economy is mature. Or you could say it a different way. You could say, look at all these video game companies. They already have lots of metaverses like Fortnite. The next step for them is to attach, um, you know, NFTs and uh, to to turn their the objects inside of their worlds and games and avatars to turn all of that into blockchain anchored digital objects, which then create economics and make them much more financial. So you can see how, depending on where you are and what kind of player you are, you're going to tilt the narrative of the metaverse in your direction. And I think, um, to me, it's, it's like in the broader science fiction story, it is the uploading of the human animal into the digital world more fully, right? It's taking our digital exhaust, our data and our behaviors, you know, and, and really plugging it into rendering it in a way that is uh that is broader that is more emotional that is more empathetic that is more uh you know satisfying um than what we've got today so i think it is a useful concept but i also understand how it can sometimes be a little bit trite let's wrap with this idea um around that so so we're we're moving into this new space over the last 15 years not just in finance but in the way that we think about our digital selves our digital identity and we're going into a place that you know it, it feels like you know everybody talks about going back to like 93 94 95 with with web one and we go into you know this sort of web two era and the challenges of you know, all of our data being sort of used against us and these attack vectors of personal information being used to make these companies just incredibly rich. But that's what's been happening in finance since the beginning of time. Uh, and so, you know, we're moving to this next iteration and we're just at the precipice of this flip. And, you know, I think this crypto winter that we're experiencing is to your point from earlier, just the beginning of the beginning. Uh, I think so much is happening right now that regulators aren't prepared for and the industry is still not prepared for because i think there's so much more to be built and i think it's going to be really exciting but given that let's wrap up that question around regulation the regulators for the financial system over the last 15 years have been you know caught flat-footed for so many different ways in terms of how the industry has evolved to even accept fintech startups and the business models that have been iterated upon and so if we think about all the different components of Web3, all the different issues with, with identity and personal information, how are we going to have the regulators even have a chance to be catching up with what's happening now? And how do you see the next year plus uh, going to change around regulation and how is that going to impact companies like yours? I, I agree with you that I think, you know, um regulating fintech has been difficult and fintechs are like kindergarten 
compared to what what is going to happen. I mean, it's like if you can't figure out how to deal with a lone salesperson on the internet, you're you're not you're not going to figure out what's going to uh, what what to do in in the coming world. Um, I think there are some deep uh, principles based regulation that that is that is very much required in the financial aspect of of web3 um, consumer protection isn't like a, a government mandate it's it's the right answer in a society given how people are and what the behaviors are and like regulation is just the collected history of the things that have gone wrong and so i do think that um over the next year especially as we really see this liquidation cascade and and the unwinding of a lot of um over levered crypto players i do think that'll be used as a um likely overreach by regulators to, to to grab stable coins to grab tokens to put gates on top of different companies that that touch the the, the these assets um and i'm you know to be to be honest a little bit um anxious about um a disconnect between um what will be regulated and what's really important what what's what's actually you know, going on and happening, because I think um, we've we've opened the Pandora's box of bringing economic value onto the internet in the way that information was on the internet before. And this is certainly not my idea nor original. People have been saying this for like a decade. Um, but what is the implication, though, of of that statement? The implication is that every five year old on the internet, or every fifteen year old is a financial engineer has the financial engineering tools that before you would only have you know in a prop trading uh desk inside of goldman sachs in 2006 now every 15 year old on the internet in bulgaria you know colombia and the philippines has it so by the way um they've got a lot of time so they're gonna financially engineer a product as much as we send an email today so let's say every person in the world issues a hundred financial instruments every year. So you're going to tell me that, you know, we're going to have 500 billion financial instruments, each analyzed and regulated by a human organization of a couple of thousand people. This is the same problem that YouTube has, right? You are some content IP owner and, you know, you're unhappy that somebody used a clip of your IP go talk to YouTube about that particular piece of content. It's it's nonsense. It's like take, telling Zuckerberg to moderate content. It's an impossible task. It's it's digital exhaust in, in the extreme, right? This is a robot problem. This is an artificial intelligence problem. And so I, I think we're going to see over the longer term, we're going to see this push and pull of the barrier to entry for financialization is gone and it's open source now and that will just generate an enormous supply of financialization in the same way that we've seen with every single other type of human content on the internet and then you're going to need you know machine scale solutions to this robot you're going to need robot solutions to this um if 
and and that's going to be very very challenging for regulators who um you know frankly have have not shown a lot of evidence that they know how to operate on machine scale um and so i think that's something that's just going to be navigated over the next you know 10 10 20 years well you know we can keep going um cuz i think we we're at a we we're at a point this might actually be one of our longest episodes. I, I can't remember now, but uh, this has been incredibly fascinating. And um, as you say, I think more interesting things are going to come and be sure to come. So thank you so much for your time today, Lex. It's been, it's been wonderful. And for our listeners who have yet to sign up for Lex's Substack, please do so. Um, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Lex, you also run a podcast too, didn't you? Yeah. So uh, if if uh, the audience wants to learn more, first off, check out consensus.net, but also grab MetaMask at metamask.io. Um, and, um, and then for s some more of my thinking, um, you can check all of it out at fintechblueprint.com or um, on Substack. It's linked there as well. Um, and we, you know, we try to have these conversations and go deep on all these different tentacles. Yes, absolutely. You do go deep on DeFi and FinTech, um, which is, which is wonderful. So thank you so much again for joining us and for the rest of you. Thank you for listening in to another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you all next week.